If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In January 1861, following his election as a new Republican president of a deeply divided United States, Abraham Lincoln made his way from Illinois to Washington, D.C. to be sworn in. The Lincoln Conspiracy, a new book from co-authors Brad Meltzer and Josh Mensch, explores a little-known plot to assassinate the president as he travelled to his inauguration. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, spoke to Brad and Josh to find out more about what happened. Well, um, I mean, the first thing I wanted to say, I mean, I read your book in one sitting. It was really great. I really loved it. Thank Um, you. So I've been really excited to chat to you both. Um, and I'll just kick off with a bit of an introduction, really. So um, the Lincoln Conspiracy considers an episode called The Baltimore Plot, uh, an attempt on the life of Abraham Lincoln in 1861, uh, four years before his assassination. Um, it's a co-written project. So perhaps we could start by talking about what brought you to the little known history and how you approached it as a team. Sure. So this is Brad, just so people can understand whose voice is whom. Um, and... Josh and I worked together. We did a TV show called uh, Lost History, of all things, which was probably the most apt title for what we consider and, and do now. And when I was working on the show, I, I, you know, people know me for writing thrillers, so which means I just murder people all day long and talk to my imaginary friends. But my love is, of course, history. And all the thrillers I write are kind of steeped in arcane history, whether it's George Washington's secret spy ring or... I've done books on Abraham Lincoln's killer. And while we were working on the show, the one thing I can say is is, uh, Josh is an award-winning documentarian. He was the best writer, the best researcher we had. And, you know, when when I've done other shows, you know, I always wind up having to talk ad nauseum so that people understood this is what I'm looking for. This is what I like. Um, And with Josh, I never had to do that. We just, we tended to always like the same arcane stuff. And to me, what makes a good story are those details. You know, people always say, what are you looking for? 
And here in the United States, it's like the Supreme Court definition of pornography, which is you know when you see it. You just have to find someone who sees the interesting things like you see them. So finding a detail like this is the first thing that George Washington bought after he was selected to be the head of the army, or here's exactly where Abraham Lincoln was playing handball when they finally told him he was going to be the new president. Those are the kind of fascinating little details that I loved, and that's where Josh and I um, – I said to him one day, I had this idea for a book. Um, We started with The Plot to Kill George Washington was our first one we did together. And I went to him and I said, I have this plot that I've been researching for nearly a decade. Do you want to write a book with me? And he said, I've never written a book before. And I said, well, you'll be just fine doing it. And and it is one of the few times in my life I've never been more correct. And uh, that's what we started working on. And then we started working on the Lincoln Conspiracy of course, after the George Washington one, because how else do you top George Washington in the United States but by bringing in Abraham Lincoln and trying to murder him? <laughs> sure. Uh, you mentioned the handball um, episode there when when Abraham Lincoln's playing handball the, the day he's... Um, uh, there's there's a big vote on it, and there's loads of little details in your book, and there's lots of moments of humanity. Um, Josh, if I could perhaps ask you, uh, you know, as as a historian, how do you bring in those details that really bring this history to life? Well, I think an, an area where Brad and I agree, sort of just as he said, was we love those human details that are often passed over in the kind of more formal history books and the more academic style history books. We're really trying to tell a human story as well as a, a, a political story and a story about history. But we, we love the personality. Uh, we try to bring all the characters to life and try to really put a reader in the moment and try to capture uh, what people are thinking and feeling at that moment. Uh, and in that case, uh, it was the, the day of uh, a big vote on whether Abraham Lincoln would receive the nomination to be uh, the candidate for for the presidency, and he's playing handball with a bunch of his buddies uh, in a back lot in Springfield, Illinois, and that tells you something about him. And um, and we just love to find those those personal details that that bring the story to life. Right, and and before we we go into the plot itself, um, you make a point of establishing quite early on in the book that his is a life marked by hardship, by tragedy. And um, perhaps we can talk a little bit about that before we go into the plot itself. Yeah, you know, I'll say this is, you know, for in the United States, there is arguably no one, no one that's as famous as Abraham Lincoln. He's arguably most famous, one of the most famous Americans who ever lived, him and George Washington. But oddly, we know nothing but the cliches about them. You know, if you shook an American in the middle of the night, you said, Abraham Lincoln, tell me two things you know about them. They would literally dart up in bed and they would say, freed the slaves. And then they would say, log cabin. Like, that's just like as if that's his entirety as a person. And that's absurd. And one of the things I think Josh and I always agreed on also is that what we do with our heroes, sadly, is we build statues of them and we worship at their feet. And we do them a huge disservice when we do that. Because then they're not human beings anymore. They're these lowercase g gods. And one of the things that I think is important, you know, if if their stories were so wonderful and so perfect in every way, and Abraham Lincoln was the poor kid who taught himself how to read and everything worked great and then he freed the slaves. Well, what's the fun in that story? Because if it's so easy, what's far more impressive to me is that it's actually so hard. And not just in kind of that lift you up by your bootstraps way that America loves to invent about themselves, but in that way of, of realizing that whoever it is you look up to, whether it's Abraham Lincoln or whether it's Winston Churchill, 
they all have moments where they're scared and they're terrified and they don't think they can go on. We just don't like talking about those moments. But to me, those are the best moments of all because that's what proves to them they're just like us. They're just like the rest of us. They're scared and they're brave and they're daring and they're cowardly and they're amazing and they're horrible, sometimes all in the same day, sometimes all in the same hour. Uh, and, and I think that's the, that humanity always, always drives the book. We don't start the plot to kill Abraham Lincoln in a Lincoln conspiracy until you meet and understand who he is as a person. And then, you, and like in any story, you care about the character. And when you care about him, you'll follow him anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. It really comes across. Um, if we can step away from Lincoln a bit then and look at um, the USA at this time in 1850s, 1860s America, it's obviously very simplistic to say that at this point in time, it was a deeply divided um uh, country o over the, the issue of slavery. Um, but can we perhaps talk about the, the violence that it was inspiring at this time? I, I think an event you signal in your book is um, the caning of Charles Sumner by Preston Brooks. Uh, yes, uh, you know, we think the country, we think the United States is divided today. Uh, but in the 1850s, it was truly, deeply, deeply, violently divided, uh, primarily over the issue of slavery, as you just said. Uh, and it was violent in the sense that there was violence around the country over this issue. Uh, one of the great issues of the day was whether new territories that were being allowed into the, into the Union as states would be free or slave. And it was a really, really big deal for both pro-slavery and anti-slavery people, whether these new states would be, uh, would be free or slave. Um, and so there was violence in those territories. Uh, but the incident we talk about in the book uh, is this just absolutely uh, unbelievable incident uh, in 1856, where in the wake of this big uh, anti-slavery speech that uh, uh, a Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner delivers on the, on the Senate floor, a few days later, um, in which he was quite insulting towards some of his, uh, his colleagues in the South, uh, a few days later uh, on a sort of a quiet afternoon in the, on the Senate floor when a bunch of senators are ambling around and working, Charles Sumner is sitting at his desk, um, a young congressman named Preston Brooks from South Carolina walks in in the afternoon, and he felt that his own uncle had been insulted uh, in this speech from the senator. And he walks in with a couple of his buddies, and he's carrying this thick cane. And he walks across to Charles Sumner's desk and uh, introduces himself, and then proceeds to assault Charles Sumner, the senator, with the cane in front of all of their colleagues brutally uh, and nearly kills him. He bludgeons him repeatedly uh, until there's blood all over the floor. And uh, it's only when others intervene that the beating stops. And, um, and Charles Sumner, the senator, was totally incapacitated uh, and, again, nearly died. Uh, and that was just one of several sort of high-profile incidents that really illustrate just how deeply, passionately, angrily divided the country was. Uh, and, of course, it's understandable because the issue was slavery and what issue could possibly be more absolutely critical, uh, this just great, moral, terrible issue that was dividing the country and that would really determine the, the fate and the future of the country. And one of the things I'll add to that is, you know, as we, as we worked and talked about that scene that Josh and I were talking about between ourselves was it is no accident that we highlighted that scene, not just because it's, it's you know, an incredible thing to watch a congressman beat a senator on the Senate floor, you know, 20 to 30 times with a metal cane and, a, you know, a metal tip on a wooden cane. Uh, and not even because it's even crazier that he gets reelected later. But I just think, you know, we are a culture right now in 
all of our different countries where we're deeply divided. And, and as Josh said, you know, we kind of say, oh, it's, it's just like then. But my God, to see it, to see the physical beating, I think just sets the tone for this is the, the world that Abraham Lincoln is about to inherit. This is the society he's about to step into. And I think without that context, again, you just fall into the cliches. But when you hear that, my gosh, it's real. Right. It, it really is a staggering passage. Um, I think it's worth worth reminding our listeners at this point um, just where Lincoln did sit in that picture, you know, what, what he was representing at this point. Um, it's worth maybe talking a bit about Republican and Democrats because they're, they, um, as you point out in the book, it's a very different picture to the parties that we might recognize today. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to draw, uh, you know, clean comparisons to the two political parties today, the Republicans and the Democrats in America, to those two same political parties in 1850. Uh, in some ways, they were the polar opposites, but historians debate that all the time, exactly, uh, you know, how you could compare and contrast the parties. But suffice it to say, for our purposes, that the two parties were very, very different. And maybe the simplest way to capture it is that uh, the Democrats were really the party of the South at that time, and the Republicans were the party of the Northeast and the big cities. So in that sense, they were basically the opposite. Uh, but of course, the, the various issues that they were debating at that time were quite different from the issues of today. Um, but for the purposes uh, of this story, uh, the, the Democrats at that time were the pro-slavery Southern Party and the Republicans were a, a brand new party that was, uh, uh, again, from the North, uh, the base was in the Northeast, and they were sort of a coalition of interests who were largely opposing slavery. And it was a very geographical divide. You had one side on the south and one side on the north. Uh, and you could pretty much draw a line straight across the middle uh, to see where the, uh, you know, where the political differences were. I was just going to say, and to, just to add to that, what's so wonderful about how we rewrite history in our, in our culture is that both sides today claim Lincoln. You're a Republican, you claim Lincoln. You're a Democrat, you claim Lincoln. Um, everyone wants a piece of Abraham Lincoln and wants to, and no one wants to be that, you know, the South, obviously, when they, when they talk about now, you know, they say, well, we're the party of Lincoln, you know, Lincoln was a Republican, um, but doesn't want to acknowledge at all, which they were, but doesn't want to acknowledge at all that, you know, the South never voted for Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln isn't even put on the ballot in most of those states. They don't even put him, there are no votes cast because they're just like, screw that guy. We're taking him off the ballot. Um, and so I just think it's fascinating, uh, you know, no matter how much historians debate it today, no one wants to claim the quote unquote bad guy role. Everyone just wants to play the role of the good guy. Right. So, so the, you know, the South then were undeniably not claiming Lincoln and the stage was um, already set for violence. And against this backdrop, um, you explore, you, you write about um, rising white supremacist groups in the South. Um, if we go to that side of things, what can you tell our listeners about the groups? What did you find out about them? About like the Knights of the Golden Circle? Yeah, the Knights of the Golden okay. Circle, the, the National Volunteers, those Yep. Groups. So, you know, I've been long obsessed with this secret society called the Knights of the Golden Circle. And they were a group of racists. We just have to say it. That's what they were. Their plan was to um, go out of uh, the southern part of the United States and um, into Mexico and the Caribbean and create what was truly a golden circle where slavery could thrive. That was the plan. The master plan um, in the James Bond movie 
is we just want more slavery and we want to do it in our own place where no one's going to stop us from being the racist we are. And they're horrible. Um, they have castles where the local chapters meet. They have secret handshakes. They have, you know, secret meetings and codes and all the things that kind of come with a secret society. Uh, what they also have are a lot of offshoots. And that this was, and we, you know, one of the things is, you know, it's really, there are things we, we have 50 pages, I think, of footnotes in this book. And one of the things that we pride ourselves on is when you keep, you know, there's some things you're just never going to know. And you can see, okay, you know, there's the National Volunteers is one offshoot. There's, you know, all these different offshoots um, of the Knights of the Golden Circle that has different people at different times and different militia groups. Um, there are armed volunteer militias, which is a popular practice at the time. And there's the Lafayette Guards who, who practice regularly around the city of Baltimore. And you have, you know, what we're trying to do is track the people that, that are, are obviously in charge of this plot. Um, and one of the things that it really leads to as we looked at it was, uh, to me, one of the great, uh, not only bad guys, but also named bad guys. His name is Cipriano Ferrandini. And he is, of all things, a barber in one of the fancy hotels in Baltimore, Maryland. And Cipriano Ferrandini, when everyone else would come into this barbershop and sit in his chair, he at times would whisper horrible things into your ear. He only hired white barbers, no blacks allowed. That was for a reason. Um, and over and over what he was doing and planning in different groups, sometimes in the Lafayette Guards, sometimes in the Volunteers, sometimes in the Knights of the Golden Circle, but was plotting to keep his Southern way of life and to keep that slavery going. And it's around this group that we see the plot taking place because, and, and we should just kind of just very quickly, I think is, it's helpful just to paint it. You know, what, what happens at the time is Abraham Lincoln is leaving, is one in 1860, he's leaving to come and be sworn in in January to be the first, uh, the 16th president of these United States. He's going to take a train ride all the way from his hometown in Illinois and come down to Washington, D.C., where he will raise his right hand like all of our presidents have done since that time. And uh, that train ride is going to take him through Baltimore, Maryland. And Baltimore, Maryland at the time is a slave state. So the plot is very simple, is when Abraham Lincoln comes through Baltimore, they're going to try and murder him. And uh, and obviously this offshoot uh headed by Cipriano Ferrandini, but with many people involved in it, um, are the ones who are really responsible for pulling this plan off. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. No other president, I don't care who you're talking about, ever faced anything as, as just fundamentally uh, terrifying as a country that was literally splitting apart in that window bef between his election and the inauguration, and that's what he was facing. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call 
Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So I understand if, if you might want to keep a few of those aspects a little bit more held back because of the book, but someone I really wanted to talk about was um, Alan Pinkerton. So perhaps we could talk a little more about his role in this episode. Uh, sure. So Alan Pinkerton is one of uh, uh, the 19th century's most colorful characters in America. He was he's widely considered the first private detective uh, in the United States. Some people might uh, dispute that a little bit because there were little groups here and there that were doing something equivalent to sort of private police work. But he was really the person who invented that role in society. And he was really a a law enforcement pioneer for that reason. Uh, And he, in his own private company, uh, pioneered a lot of different different tools of law enforcement. Uh, He was based in Illinois, in Chicago. uh, And he created this, this firm, the Pinkerton Detective Agency, that uh, became very well known and very successful uh, in the 1850s. And he um, uh, was, his his firm was really exploding at around the time of the 1860 election when Lincoln won. And uh, by sort of chance, um, he had just been hired by a railroad president to investigate plots against railroads in Maryland. And he was, so he was snooping around Maryland and snooping around Baltimore trying to uh, learn about these potential plots to sabotage a railroad. And in the course of that investigation, Pinkerton sniffs out this much more serious and much more deadly plan that's underway in the city of Baltimore by these uh, uh, wannabe secessionists, by these pro-slavery white supremacists in Baltimore who absolutely despise Abraham Lincoln and have come up with this plot to uh, kill Lincoln on the way to his inauguration. So Pinkerton sniffs out the plot and then, uh, and then undertakes this very complicated and undercover investigation to find out what the plot is all about. And that's uh, a big part of our book is telling this story. And then one of the things that's great about Pinkerton is, you know, he, he's really colorful. Josh described him as colorful, which, you know, is, is a nice way of saying he's, you know, completely wonderful and completely crazy like all the rest of us, but just in an amazing way. And and one of the things that I love about him is, you know, he starts out by really truly snooping around into cases and he sees some guys who he's like, are they breaking the law? Let me take this in my own hands. Let me report it. Let me tell the cops. And the cops are like, that's helpful. But eventually he decides, you know, the cops, you know, especially in Chicago, the cops are dirty. And I'm going to do this myself. And there's this wonderful line in the book that I'll paraphrase, but it's, you know, he's, he's trying to, you know, be this great law enforcement figure in one hand, but he's breaking the law and taking it into his own hands in the other. He's kind of like the, the 1860 version of Batman. Um, and, or, and I think self-imagined in many ways as, as just you know, this wonderful, righteous soul. But full credit to him, and, and one of the people I, I feel like we'd be remiss not to mention, 
is this woman, Kate Warren. And Kate Warren is a 26-year-old widow. She has no kids. She's got to support her parents. And she sees a listing for detective work at the Pinkerton Agency. And she walks in the door and basically at a time when no woman is being hired by anyone to be a private detective, much less be in law enforcement, basically says, I want the job. And, you know, to this day, we don't know if Alan Pinkerton is just, you know, the the most forthright and amazingly forward person when it comes to gender rights or simply just realizes, you know what, it's going to help me crack some cases. I'm going to make a buck. But full credit to him. He says, I'm going to hire you. He realizes there are going to be people who talk to you and trust you in a way that they'll never trust me. And she becomes a part of this amazing plot as well. Again, we don't want to ruin and reveal all the, the secrets of it, but you know, it's, it's this wonderful cast of characters that are truly, you know, the ones who, who ferret out the information, infiltrate the quote unquote bad guys in these secret societies and figure out, oh my gosh, they're going to try and kill Abraham Lincoln and we have to stop them. And, you know, as someone who writes thrillers, I couldn't make this up. No one would believe it, but it, it's amazing to watch them at this time when, you know, they're, they have this kind of new fledgling technology that they're figuring out, whether it's, you know, teletypes or, or trains or how fast information can move, but they're using all the resources they have to make sure that Abraham Lincoln is not killed at, at this moment at the start of his presidency. Hmm. So we've got Lincoln making his way from Illinois to Washington, D.C. by train. We've got uh, Pinkerton and his tree team trying to uh, thwart uh, a plot to kill him. And we've got these racist groups plotting his uh, death. Um, I know, obviously, there's all in the book, all of these wonderful details. But I, one thing I hoped you might not mind talking about is, is Lincoln's reaction himself. How did he react to this plot? Uh, this is my this is my favorite. My, my, it, again, I will not reveal because it it's so much fun to read. That moment when you see Abraham Lincoln be told, because you have all these you know different people moving, right? You have the secret society making their master plan. You have Pinkerton trying to ferret it out. You have Kate Warren and all the other detectives infiltrating um, the secret societies and all these kind of racist little villages, you know, and, and, and conclaves. Uh, and then you've got Abraham Lincoln at the center of it all. And he's on this moving train that's slowly, you know, kind of touring the country and moving its way toward Washington, D.C. And finally comes that moment about three quarters of the way through the book where they have to tell him, Mr. President, they're coming to kill you. And again, I won't reveal, you know, I think the scene is just spectacular and, and, and we, you know, I love, you know, full credit to Josh on that. He just did incredible research to get the kind of details in there. But what I love is they tell him, listen, sir, um, you're supposed to be in Philadelphia tomorrow and you shouldn't go to Philadelphia. They're going to kill you if you, you know, if you don't, if you don't get to Washington DC early, if you don't kind of like skip this thing and let us get you through Baltimore earlier, they're going to kill you when you go through there. You got to skip your event in in Philadelphia. And Abraham Lincoln in that moment, nope, I'm not doing it. I'm going to Philadelphia. And they're like, what's in Philadelphia? And what's in Philadelphia is he wants to honor the next day, the birthday of his hero, a man named George Washington. And they're going to uh, at uh, where the Declaration of Independence at Constitution Hall was actually signed. They're going to honor George Washington and mark his birth. And it's this wonderful moment where and you see the speech that Lincoln gives that day, and he talks about, and again, I'll paraphrase horribly, but basically talks about how we must stand together or he'd rather be you know, shot dead and assassinated. And what's so wonderful is that he knows at that moment that there's a plot to kill him. And yet those words leave his lips in that way. 
Um, and, and needless to say, again, this part I won't reveal, but what, what takes place after that, after that day in Philadelphia, uh, the, the real chase starts on the speeding train as they sneak him out. And I won't ruin how they do it, but, you know, in disguises with code names, with all the secret stuff that should go along with trying to protect the president of you know, president elect of the United States. Um, it is just one of the great moments to watch Lincoln react and to react. I won't reveal this part, but the other group that also comes with some secret information for him. So it's no spoiler to say that he, he does survive this episode. Um, but You the, ruined the whole book now. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, but the existence of, of this plot um, was questioned or perhaps muddied by some contemporary sources. So uh, am I right in saying that it's definitely, it, its existence has been challenged? Well, that's a complicated question. Uh, um, there was no question that there was... Uh, a nefarious plot against him. Uh, however, in the immediate aftermath, uh, there were people who doubted it, primarily uh, people, Lincoln's opponents, who said, you know, there was no real plot. He was just, you know, terrified and, and what a fool that he would change his, his train itinerary to avoid a plot that didn't even exist. So it was a way to kind of embarrass him and humiliate him. And then well after the fact, this is kind of getting into the details, but one of Lincoln's own colleagues uh, disputed that it had happened, but it turns out that it's because he had a personal beef with Alan Pinkerton, and so he was trying to kind of discredit Alan Pinkerton uh, by uh, muddying Pinkerton's reputation uh, by claiming that the plot didn't really exist, so that Pinkerton put everyone through these paces for no good reason. Um, but there's lots and lots of evidence uh, of this plot existing, including all the contemporaneous notes by Pinkerton and his agents as they were under uncovering this plot, they were keeping detailed notes that were confidential. So they would have all had to make up all these notes uh, for no particular reason. And then even more uh, persuasive uh, is there was actually another group of uh, police detectives who were investigating the same plot simultaneously and who came to the same conclusion, even though these two groups didn't even know about each other. Pinkerton's group didn't know about the cops. The cops didn't know about Pinkerton. Uh, but they both came to the same conclusion that there was a group that was planning to kill uh, Abraham Lincoln. So uh, now perhaps the more interesting controversy was just the political reaction to the fact that there was a plot to kill Abraham Lincoln and the fact that he took an alternate route and avoided uh, uh, or took an alternate route to the Capitol, which then immediately hit the newspapers and it became this political firestorm um, that at, at this incredibly perilous moment uh, for the country, Abraham Lincoln was going to be assassinated and he had to change his route to the, uh, to the Capitol. And you can just imagine what, a, what an incredible political moment it was. Uh, and just everyone in the country absolutely went bananas about this fact. And, uh, and it, it was a real firestorm and everyone had all kinds of different opinions about it and how Lincoln conducted himself. But that just gives you a little sense of the environment that Abraham Lincoln was walking into. The country was splitting apart. There was an assassination attempt. Uh, the political press is going absolutely wild. He's about to give this inauguration. People are already worried about a coming war. It's just the most dramatic, absolutely unbelievably tense moment in American history. And that's the moment when Abraham Lincoln arrives in Washington, D.C. to take over the presidency. Mm -hmm. and I think we don't often go in for um, alt, too much alt history on this podcast. Um, but I think this is a, such a moment right for the what if question. I mean, you know, you, you speculate a little in the book, you know, what does this mean for American history that this plot doesn't succeed? And what if? 
Yeah, you can't help but ask it, right? I mean, here's, and that's the fun of when we did the plot to kill George Washington and when we did the plot to kill Abraham Lincoln in the Lincoln conspiracy is you have to ask, my gosh, here we are. It's 1861, the Civil War is, you know, truly starting. And um, what happens without him? And, and obviously, you know, could someone come in and do just as well and, and keep the country together, maybe even do it better, maybe even, even work on the slavery issue faster? Maybe, or maybe not. And I agree with you. I, I can't imagine alt history. What I do know, and, what, and, and even, and I wish we kind of, it's funny because when you write a book, you, you wind up like putting it to bed and then you kind of have, of course, the thoughts that continue afterwards. And one of the things that keeps sticking with me and, one, and, and that I wish we kind of put in there because it's just I can't get it out of my head is as I keep asking this what if question, the one thing that I do know we lose is we lose Abraham Lincoln. And America is a country that is loves legends and myths. We're founded on legends and myths. And the legends and myths we love most are our own. And I think that, you know, we... Abraham Lincoln isn't just the story of the of the great man, but he becomes the story of America itself. It's self-taught. It you know it 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 lives in the dirt. It doesn't know how to read or write. But my gosh, with just some good gumption, and you're gonna make it one day, kid. Like that's the American dream itself. And we tell that story to invigorate ourselves, to remind ourselves where the country came from. We use it for all those kind of self-rewards that we want to give ourselves. But when you lose that story, when you lose Abraham Lincoln, um, you know, again, could there be someone else who comes in? Sure. But to have that story, certainly the people who came in after him didn't have that. And, uh, and it is interesting that in all that time since, we don't have another president like Abraham Lincoln. It's not like he's, you know, oh, just wait every couple, you know, every hundred years and you'll get another one. You know, when you look at George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, we don't, you know, we don't get them. They're not very often. I mean, maybe some people grab Kennedy because he was killed and there's some kind of an emotional attachment. Um, and there's always an emotional attachment to what could have been. But I think it's it's really, I think what would be more profound, you know, potentially, because we can't know what would happen with slavery, but it's just that idea of, of that symbol that you lose. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really, really happy with what we've got there, unless you'd like to Touch on anything else. Josh, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add or anything we forgot or anything. I got nothing. Uh, I don't think so. You know, maybe I'll just add one small thing uh, because maybe it's the thing that I most thought about learning about this history, which is, or maybe didn't fully realize, um, which is in terms of trying to understand Abraham Lincoln's journey uh, from the point he gets elected, I just didn't realize how quickly this all happened. From the moment Abraham Lincoln is elected, to the day that he is to be inaugurated, which is about four months, half of it, like the country starts literally splitting apart. Six states actually secede from the union in that tiny window between his election and his inauguration. So talk about like a difficult burden to take on. No other president, I don't care who you're talking about, ever faced anything as as just fundamentally uh, terrifying as a country that was literally splitting apart in that window bef- between his election and the inauguration. And that's what he was facing. And the true extent of that, I had never truly understood or realized until we told this story. And just imagining what that would be like as a leader to face that situation. That was Brad Meltzer and Josh Mensch. Their new book, The Lincoln Conspiracy, 
The Secret Plot to Kill America's 16th President and Why It Failed, is out now, available in hardback, ebook, and audiobook, published by Flatiron Books. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Friday when Glenn Richardson will be talking about one of the greatest spectacles of the Tudor age, the Field of the Cloth of Gold. <laughs>